I came across a story this week that I had never heard before. Um, and I, I was talking to Katie about it last night. She hadn't heard of the story either. Uh, it's from World War II. In the Battle of the Bulge, there were 12,000 troops that were trapped by the Nazis. And uh, they were under great attack. Uh, the Germans had put a petition forward to get them to surrender. And they said, we're absolutely not going to do that. Um, and so they put the word out, and General Patton was going to bring the Third Army to rescue them. But they were having significant problems in getting to these 12,000 troops that were trapped by the Nazis because the weather was horrible. Constant rain, constant wind, constant storms. They couldn't get the army to rescue because the storms were so bad. Well, Patton, um, if you know much about history, is known for his even keel demeanor. Uh, he went out and he was screaming at the sky one day and he gave it up and came inside and uh, decided, well, if, if nothing I am doing in screaming at the weather to stop the rain so we can get there, using more colorful language, of course, he turns to his chaplain of the Third Army, and he gives him probably what, what, what I would think would be one of the most unique orders this chaplain has ever received. He tells this chaplain, let me see if I, I've got his name here, uh, it, it was uh, Colonel James O'Neill. He gives the chaplain this order, I want you to write a prayer, and I want you to put it on a card that's about a business card size, index card size. We're going to print one up for every single member of the Third Army, hundreds of thousands of troops. So I want you to write this prayer, we're going to copy it and put it on these cards, and we're going to distribute it to every member of the, of the Third Army so they can pray it simultaneously, and maybe God will relent and, and let up the weather. And so the General gives this order, you know, uh, Colonel um, O'Neill goes in there, he writes this prayer, and they write it up on cards, distribute it to every member of the Third Army, and they all pray it at one time. Some of them continue to bring the card out throughout the day and are praying this prayer. And here's what the prayer said. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that armed with thy power we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish thy justice among men and nations." And so this prayer was distributed. Everyone in the Third Army is praying this prayer. Uh, all they needed to get the Third Army to rescue these 12,000 troops was 24 hours of, of not horrible weather. And so they're all praying this prayer. The, the rain relents and the army moves in and are able to rescue those 12,000 troops. It's what's been called Patton's finest hour. He was able to rescue those troops all because he asked his chaplain to pray and lead their men to pray. And as a result of this, something that I, I, had never, I would wager wouldn't happen anymore, this chaplain was awarded the bronze, was it the, I think it was the bronze star, he was in the army. Uh, he was awarded the bronze star for quote unquote writing a prayer. Can you imagine the army giving a chaplain a medal like that for writing a prayer. That's why he was given the medal, because he wrote that prayer. 
and uh, the army went in and was able to do this thing. You see, prayer is phenomenally powerful. Not only is it phenomenally powerful, it's so powerful that it's recognizable to other people who absolutely do not believe that God can do amazing things. And so we're told, as we have seen these last few weeks, by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 to pray at all times. And then we're told by Paul again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. So just looking out at the room, you don't have to raise your hand. Has anyone ever been successful at this? Praying without ceasing. Constant prayer. Every moment of every day in prayer. It's a difficult undertaking. It's, a, it's, it's almost, you know, paralyzing to think of the thought. Uh, and the second we start to think about, okay, I need to be praying, in that moment we're not praying because we're thinking about praying rather than praying. How can we do this thing? How can we live out these words of Paul? Well, we're going to take a look at a guy who it would appear is able to do this very thing. So open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. It's on page 398 if you're going to use a Bible on the pew rack. Page 398. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you uh, and keep it. We've got extras that we restock the pews with, but you need a Bible if you don't have one. Nehemiah chapter 1. Just to give you a little context of what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, some years before this, actually 141 years before Nehemiah chapter 1, 141 years, uh, the Israelites, or uh, Jude, the nation of Judah, had been conquered by another nation. And the city of Jerusalem was decimated. Walls burned to the ground, temple just completely destroyed. And all of the able-bodied Israelites living in Jerusalem were taken as captives to the conquering nation. They left some people behind to continue to work the land so it would still be uh, useful for whenever the new conquering king wanted to use it. Uh, but they took the vast majority of people away. Well, remember this 141 years before Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, 70 years after it was conquered, some people come back and they begin to rebuild in the city of Jerusalem. They're given permission to rebuild. And so they rebuild the temple as best they can. Nothing compared to its former glory, but they do the best they can. Because the former temple was a temple Solomon built. And it was a sight to behold, as best we can tell. Gold everywhere. It looked amazing. And they rebuild it just so they can have a place to worship there. Well, so that was halfway. So 141 years before this, nation conquered. 70 years, temple rebuilt. Uh, and now we get here to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is among a group of people who are descendants of those who were taken captive from Jerusalem. I mean, obviously, Nehemiah is not 141 years old. Uh, he is, uh, he ha would have been born in this foreign nation. But he still would have had relatives that lived back in Judah, in Jerusalem. And so we get an opportunity to witness some of those relatives coming to visit him, and, and the word that they give him is very unique. You see, the book of Nehemiah, if, if you read the whole thing, it's not too long. I would encourage you to do it. The, the whole book is really a journal. It's Nehemiah's journal that he writes about his experiences and what he's going through and what he witnesses. 
Uh, he includes in there uh, 10 different places where he prays, and he writes some of those prayers down for us to read, and how God responds to those prayers and opposition he experiences. And so reading the book of Nehemiah is unique, more so than some of the other passages of Scripture. So let's start in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So Nehemiah is in Susa, which is one of the capitals. It's like the winter capital, the winter uh, uh, stronghold of the uh, king where he would go. And in the 20th year of the king's reign, he's there in this city. Now, I want to point out something interesting as we get into what he's going to experience. Uh, The name Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. So his name means the Lord comforts. And so as he's attempting to live out what his name means, the Lord comforts, verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So the walls are broken down, the gates are destroyed by fire. Now back in the day, if you were any town or city of note, you had walls around your town as a, as a course of protection because it was very unsafe to live back then. That you had the walls because anybody and everybody would come and try to attack you. Any other town who wanted your land, any other town who didn't like somebody in your town would come and try to attack. So you had these walls around, big old thick walls many times to try to protect your people. And so when he learns that the walls of Jerusalem are torn down, it's not only a point of, of safety that they need these walls, it's also a point of shame. Because everyone would look at Jerusalem and then would think Jerusalem is weak. Jerusalem doesn't matter. The God that they supposedly worship, those people there in Jerusalem, he doesn't care about them because they don't have a wall. And so all of this hits Nehemiah as his brother's relaying this to him. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So he hears this report from his brother and he sits down and he weeps and he mourns for days. Have you ever received news that was just absolutely devastating? That it's all you think about for days. It occupies every waking thought. This, this weight, this cloud of, of pain and grief and struggle. That's Nehemiah's experience. He hears the news, he sits down, and he's weeping and mourning for days on end. And it says there something interesting that is going to be important for the rest of this passage. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I continued doing this. Now, you can, we'll, we'll ask the question now and get into the answer in just a second. How long was he praying and fasting continually? He says he continues doing it. It continues on uh, from this moment forward. He continues without stopping. He would fast for a little bit. Obviously, he's not going to fast for this entire time, but he would fast in, in periods during this time, and he prays continually. 
And this is an example of what he prays here, verse 5. And he said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, before we get into the rest of the prayer, I want to point out, it says in there, he's praying day and night. He's constantly in prayer. It's constantly before, not just his mind, but before God. And he opened the prayer in verse 5 with great attention to God. Even though he's experiencing phenomenal grief and pain and struggle, he opens the prayer still with, God, you are great, you are awesome, you keep your covenants, your steadfast love is amazing, you keep your commandments. He praises God even as he gets into this struggle he's going through. He says, listen to what I'm saying, please. Hear my prayer. Yes, we have sinned. All the people. Now notice too, he doesn't just say the people of Israel have sinned, which obviously they did. They, they did all kinds of, not, I mean, they did worship other gods, uh, the gods of the people around them. But what was even more despicable than that was the way in which the other people around them worshipped their gods was just absolutely depraved, would even be considered depraved by American standards. I mean, it was just bad, Uh, I mean, to the point of child sacrifice uh, and the things they would do in their sanctuary was despicable. And it was going on in Israel, and and Nehemiah saying, God, we sinned phenomenally. And he says, not only did did they sin, he said, God, I am a sinner, me. I am a sinner in my whole father's house. We we sin, God. We we are such sinners, and we don't deserve your attention, but, but you give it to us anyway. Oftentimes, in you know, today's world, we're very quick to point out the sins of other people. Very quick to point out the sins of other people, whether out loud or online, or maybe it's just a perceived sin of what we see in somebody else. We're very slow to confess our own struggles, the deep struggles that we don't talk about. But here is Nehemiah before God saying, I'm a sinner. I, I, I have disobeyed you. God. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he says, even though we have sinned in a phenomenal way, verse 8, remember the word you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make your name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So he's building up to something. But he says, we have all sinned. We've done all this stuff, God. But even though we've done all this, please help us. Please help us now. And then he, he ends this prayer, this, a prayer that he's been praying for a very long time. He ends it with, give me success today and grant me mercy in the sight of this man. He's about to go in and make a request of the king. Uh, it says he was the cupbearer to the king, which was a very important job. The cupbearer had a lot of responsibilities. Uh, 
not the least of which, the most famous of which, was anything that was set before the king for him to eat or drink. The cupbearer had to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Some cupbearers in some uh, uh, courts would actually take a drink first before handing the cup to the king or take a bite first before handing the cup to the king. And if they didn't die, then it wasn't poison and the king could, could take it. And that may have been Nehemiah's specific job. Uh, we know that this nation that he was serving in um, was very wealthy. And uh, Nehemiah may have been uh, higher up in this rank and that would have been somebody else's job to be the tester. We don't really know. But we know that he was cupbearer to the king, which was a very important job. There was nobody else more trusted than the king's cupbearer. Because the king had to trust the cupbearer wasn't going to try to poison him. And so the king would trust the cupbearer. The king would love the cupbearer. Many times the cupbearer would be considered a part of the king's family. Because the king had to trust him that much. Which is very telling also. Because this king is trusting a descendant from one of the conquered nations that he has conquered. Nehemiah is very strategically placed here as cupbearer to the king. He's been praying for a significant amount of time, and we're about to see how long it was. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Now what's very important here is back in the first verse of chapter 1, it says it was the month of Chislev. I know you all know what that month was, right? That is November, December-ish. And so when he says here in chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan, that is March, April. So it's been four months. Four months he's been praying. Four months since he got the news of what was going on in Jerusalem. Four months he's been fasting uh, periodically. Four months he's been praying before God, seeking God for what God would have in this moment. And it says there, as he's been praying now for four months, he says he's taking in the king's meal. He says, I haven't yet been sad in the king's presence. Because if, if you are a, you know, part of the king's court, you weren't allowed to express any kind of emotion except joy or to mirror whatever emotion the king was, was, was displaying. And so if the king, if, if you would set the king off his mood, he would set off your head. Kind of a situation. And so Nehemiah here, in writing in his journal, says, I've never been sad in the king's presence, but now he is. Verse 2, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. And so Nehemiah realizes that he is displaying outwardly what he's feeling inside. Now, to me, reading this, that the king would recognize this on Nehemiah shows how close they are. Because the people you're closest to may be able to put a front on to other people and they, other people think they're fine. But if you're close to them, you can sense when something's off. You can sense when they're not feeling good. You can sense when they're upset. You can sense when they're sad. Maybe it's an intonation, maybe it's a, uh, you know, some sort of movement they're doing, or maybe it's just a sixth sense because you've been around them so much. And so the king, being so around Nehemiah, gets this sense something's not right with Nehemiah. And he asks him about it, and Nehemiah gets scared. Maybe he's seen somebody else who was sad in the king's presence just get killed. Maybe something else is going on, and, and so he's scared that the king recognizes that he's sad. This great fear wells up within him. Now, verse 3, 
So he, so he goes, I say to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Now, that's a bold thing to say to this king. We know from history this king is not an even kill king. This king does not keep his, you know, his head very often. And so when Nehemiah, this is a very bold thing to say to the king. Why shouldn't I be sad that my hometown, I've never been there, but my hometown where my family grew up and was raised, it lies in ruins by your ancestors, king, by the people who, who have set us up here. He says it lies in ruins. Why shouldn't I be sad? And all this goes back to his prayer from chapter 1 when he says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so now he's, he's speaking with great boldness even though there's an underlying fear uh, because he's asking God to intervene in this moment. So he doesn't know as he finishes that sentence what the king's reaction is going to be, whether it's off of his head or whether something else is going to happen. So he says this, verse 4, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So the king makes an inquiry, asks a question. It's, it's implied from, chat, from verse 3 that Nehemiah is asking something of the king. The king understood that. And so he says, okay, now what do you want? What do you want? And so in the moment, in the moment, Nehemiah prays. As he's with the king, he prays. Now, it, it, Nehemiah doesn't stop everything in the king's court, get down on his knees and pray. He prays as he has a conversation with the king. As he's talking, he's praying. This is the idea of praying continually. He's praying as he's speaking with the king. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So he makes his request. Let me go back there and rebuild the city. Verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, in all the commentaries I read, there's a lot of discussion about that, parent, that, that, that little phrase in parentheses, the queen sitting beside him. Nobody really knows why, is that, why that's there. I mean, it's a very unique thing to, I mean, for the queen to be there. That meant it was probably a very intimate dinner. It wasn't like a court dinner. It wasn't in the throne room. Uh, it was a very important room here with, with them sitting there. Maybe the queen sitting beside him softened him a little bit. We don't know. But his response is, how long will you be gone when will you return? So it pleased the king to send him. The, the king trusts Nehemiah enough that he would send this trusted uh, uh, you know, helper down there, not only that, we're going to find out later in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is appointed governor of the whole region. He goes from cupbearer to the king to governor of the whole region. And he goes down there, and so the king says, what, how long will you be gone? Give me a time frame here. Verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governor's of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. 
for the good hand of God was upon me. I want you to notice something in those verse 7 and 8. Nehemiah makes very specific requests. Very specific. King, I want you to give me a letter, uh, letters to, to all the nations i got to walk through to get to Jerusalem, telling everybody that I've got a free pass from you. And then I want you to give me a letter to the keeper of the forest to let me have a blank check to get as much wood as I need to rebuild the city. And the king gives him what he asks. And if you go on and read, the king gives him a lot more than that. Gives him backup, gives him guards to go down there with. He takes care of him uh, in, in a way beyond even what Nehemiah requested. But Nehemiah was prepared when he walked in there to make this request of the king. In praying for these four months here, he was preparing himself and the situation so that when the Lord answered the prayer, giving him success in the midst of the king, he would be able to act instantly on what he was praying for. He was praying he'd have success with the king, so he's been preparing for four months spiritually and physically in, in preparation for when the king, he makes his request, and if the king doesn't kill me, and if the king says yes, then i got to know specifically what I need on my to-do list so I can go down there and do it. So that when he gets what God, when he gets a yes from God for his prayer request, he's able to jump immediately in to the situation. Very often, though, we're not prepared in the same way Nehemiah was. We wait until we get a yes from God to start preparing, but Nehemiah, in praying continually, is preparing in his uh, activity and uh, uh, anticipation the entire four months. Those four months of prayer prepared Nehemiah to spiritually multitask. In the moment, he's praying while talking, getting his, his, his request list ready in his mind for when the king says, what do you need? It prepared Nehemiah for God's plan. That four months of prayer prepared him for God's plan. That's something that prayer does for us. Prayer prepares us for God's plan. It gets us ready for God's plan so that when God's plan is enacted, we're ready to take part. That doesn't mean God's plan only comes when we pray. Sometimes God's plan comes and we're not ready because we haven't prepared. Sometimes God's plan doesn't come because we haven't prayed as we're going to see in just a second. You see, I'm going to point out three ways here that prayer prepares us for God's plan. Three ways that prayer prepares us for God's plan. First, prayer directs our actions. Prayer directs our actions going forward if we're willing to listen to the Lord's voice of guidance. Prayer directs our actions when we're willing to listen to the Lord's voice. Listen to what the Lord says to us. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. He will make straight your paths. He will show you the way to go if you listen to him. He will show you what to do if you pay attention to him. Luke chapter 11, verse 28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. You hear what God says, and you do it. You live it out. Then you're blessed. Then you're following God's plan. You're doing what God wants. If you're in prayer, prayer isn't just listing off prayer requests. Prayer is a conversation. Prayer is a conversation. I don't know how many conversations you have, but conversations usually mean more than one person talking. If only one person is talking, it's a monologue. If more than one person is talking, it's a conversation. So that means we have to listen to what God's saying. 
And so if we're listening to what God's saying, either he's speaking straight to our hearts or he's speaking to us, as he most often does, through something he gave us that has a whole lot of his words written in it, a thousand some odd pages of his words, his word telling us the way to go and things to do. We hear the word of God and we keep it. Prayer directs our actions. Not only does prayer direct our actions, prayer prepares us for the Lord's direct intervention. Prayer prepares us for the Lord's direct intervention. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this point. You see, because we know God doesn't change. He says that in Scripture. Malachi chapter 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But prayer prepares us for the Lord's intervention because the Lord does intervene. We see it in Scripture. The Lord does intervene. The Lord does intervene when we pray. But what we do know from Scripture is that sometimes God doesn't intervene until we pray. The book of James, chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passing, your passions. So you do not have because you do not ask. So what James is saying in James chapter 4 is sometimes you don't have what God wants to give you because you don't ask him for it. You don't humble yourself and ask him for it. You don't ask God to intervene. You don't ask God to take part. You don't ask God to do it. Or sometimes you do ask and don't receive because as James said in verse 3 of chapter 4, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. You ask selfishly, pridefully. To benefit yourself and not the Lord, you ask sinfully, is what James is saying. So the implication behind James chapter 4 is that we should be praying. We should be praying for God's direct intervention, for God to, to come down and heal, for God to come down and provide, for God to come down and do the miraculous. And God will, but we've got to seek him out. We've got to seek him out and pray for it and ask God for it. So prayer is preparing us for the Lord's intervention. Sometimes, as I said a second ago, the Lord's going to intervene and we're not prepared because we haven't, been, we haven't been praying for it. Sometimes he's not going to intervene because we haven't prayed for it. Let me give you an example. 2 Kings chapter 20. There's a king. This king had been doing good stuff for God. He did yeah, some prideful things, but mainly good stuff for God. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah got sick. And God sent the prophet to Hezekiah to tell him he was going to die. So the prophet goes in, king's laying in bed, and the prophet says to King Hezekiah, God sent me to tell you this sickness you have is going to kill you. And the prophet just turns and leaves. <laughs> How would you like to receive that? I mean, the prophet from God walks in and says, this sickness you have is going to kill you. That's what God's word for you is. Prophet leaves, walking out of the palace. The king, it's only like two or three verses. It's 2 Kings chapter 20. It's, it's, It's an incredible thing. The king just turns to the wall, it says, and he prays this prayer in verse 3. The king prays. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Hezekiah ends up asking God to save him, asking God to heal him. He asked God to heal him. He asked God to intervene. 
Even though God just said, you're going to die, Hezekiah asked God to intervene. And God speaks to the prophet before he even gets out of the palace. So remember, the prophet came in, said, Hezekiah, you're going to die. He leaves. Hezekiah hears the word from God, turns to the wall, prays, God, don't let me die. And as the prophet is leaving, as he's uh, walking out, God tells the prophet, now I want you to go back in there and tell Hezekiah he's not going to die. I want you to tell him I'm going to give him 15 more years. Not 15 more years to do whatever he wants. I'm going to give him 15 more years to, to do great things for me, to great years, things of purpose. And so, so the prophet comes back in to Hezekiah as he's weeping and still praying there facing the wall. Because, I mean, the prophet just left literally 60 seconds ago. He comes back in and says, oh, hey, Hezekiah, by the way, you're not going to die. You're going to live 15 more years. And then the prophet leaves. So Hezekiah is healed because God intervened. So would God have intervened if Hezekiah hadn't prayed? Well, the implication from 2 Kings chapter 20 is no. God had just told him, you're going to die. That's the word of God. You're going to die, Hezekiah. The only thing that changed from verses 1 and 2 to the verse after this when the prophet comes back is Hezekiah prayed. He displayed a, a humble posture of prayer in turning and praying to God, God, heal me. He dropped all his pride. Don't heal me because I'm the king. God, just heal me. And God did. God directly intervened in Hezekiah's life because he prayed for it, because he asked for it, because he lived out James chapter 4, even though it would be you know, a very long time before James chapter 4 has written compared to 2 Kings chapter 20. But he still prays, God, intervene. And God did. God gave him 15 more years because he prayed for it. But how often do we inadvertently live out James chapter 4? You do not have because you do not ask or you ask wrongly. Maybe... There's been times you've prayed for something. I know there's been times I've prayed for stuff. It's been absolutely selfish, absolutely, 100%. And God didn't give it to me. And I can look back five, ten years down the road, it took a while, and say, oh, God, thank you for not, not saying yes to that one. That would have been terrible. Or there's been other times praying for something and God said just outright no that I really wanted. I thought it would bring God glory. I thought it would be great. But God still said no. And in that moment, I've got to trust God. I've got to trust him, as we saw a few weeks ago from Corinthians, when Paul said, my, God told him, my grace is sufficient for you when I tell you no. But we still pray for God to intervene. We still pray for God to actively come down and bring his healing hand, bring his hand of provision, and, 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 and uh, take part in our lives, which he does every day, all the time. And so prayer prepares us for his direct intervention. It gets us ready for it. Prayer prepared Hezekiah as he's praying and begging God to, to spare his life. It prepared him spiritually for that moment, for when God intervened. But he had to pray for it. He had to pray for it. So prayer prepares us for God's direct intervention. Number three, prayer changes our perspective when the sinfully broken world system causes pain. Prayer changes our perspective when the sinfully broken world 
causes us pain. In the book of Psalms, there's many illustrations, but I'm going to give you one. Uh, in Psalm chapter 59, Psalm 59, David's writing this psalm. He's going through a difficult situation. Uh, he's being pursued. He's got great opposition. He's got these guys who are enemies, enemies of his, enemies of God. And as sometimes happens when, when David would pen a psalm, he would start the psalm displaying the transparency of his heart and what he's going through. And so look at what he says, Psalm 59 verse 5. David says, you Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Now, we don't know what that word means, selah. Some people think that's just a break in the, in the musical uh, section uh, there. It could just be a, a moment to breathe or it could mean peace. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The issue is David here in verse 5 is saying, God, get them. Get all of them. Every one of them who's doing all this stuff that I think is evil, God, you go out there and you get them. Just wipe them out, God. Come on. Just take care of them. God, I am David. I am your king. I'm man after your own heart. God, I'm following you. I killed Goliath. God, get them. That's how he starts out this psalm. God, just wipe them out. But as he continues to pray, that's what Psalm 59 is a prayer. As he continues to pray, something shifts. Verse 11 of Psalm 59. He says, I'm going to read it like how I perceive him writing. He goes, kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. So it's as though he's saying, where back in verse 5, he says, God, just get them. Now verse 11, he's saying, God, you know, don't kill them. Like, you know, make them realize they're wrong, but just don't kill them. And then it shifts again, because as David, again, continues to pray, spend time in the presence of God, spend more time in prayer. His perspective of the situation he's in changes dramatically because of where he ends the psalm, verse 16. He says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So he started the psalm, he started his prayer angry and mad and frustrated, complaining about what's going on, asking God to just get him. And he ends the prayer with complete praise about God's hand in his life. He started with, God, you're not doing anything in my life right now. You've got to act and you've got to take them out. But now he's ending it with, God, I know you're here, and you are my strength. You show me constant steadfast love. You are my fortress, even though all this stuff is going on. You're where I run to. Prayer changes our perspective, even when the world is turned on its head. And so this idea that Paul has presented in Ephesians and 1 Thessalonians, to pray continually, to pray at all times, to pray without ceasing, it, it is intended to change our complete worldview and demeanor. The most joyous people I've ever known in my life are people who have prayed more than anybody else because they're constantly in the presence of God. It's something we should all strive for and pursue. I've told this story before, but there was a guy some years ago, um, man, 15, 20 years ago, uh, maybe longer. Um, I'm just blanking on the year now. Uh, it's been a long time. 
uh, but I would meet with him uh, once a month. He was, he was, he was a, uh, a pastor. He'd been a pastor for 34 years. Uh, he had since retired. And uh, I met with him once a month at this Mexican food place, and I'd just pick his brain and ask him all these questions. And uh, one time, one day, I asked him this question. I said, Dr. Allen, if you could go back across your entire life, man in his 80s, go, go back across your entire life and change one thing, what would you change? And he didn't hesitate when he answered. I thought it would take him a while to think about, and I thought he was going to say something, well, there was this one time I lost my cool in this meeting, or I'd go back and do this thing with my family, or I would, me and my wife would, would do this, and we, we would go and we'd do this. And without hesitation, yeah, his name was Wayne Allen, Dr. Wayne Allen. He said, I would pray more. And in the moment, that floored me. Because I could count on one hand the spiritual giants that I knew, that I thought, you know, knew God, and, and they, they prayed something, and it happened, and they had such phenomenal faith, and he was at the top of the list, and he's sitting there across from me, a spiritual giant, and he says, I would pray more. I immediately thought, man, I need to pray a lot more. <laughs> like, if he needs to pray more, I need to pray, I, I need to, you know, really up my game here. He said, I would pray more. As he looks back across everything, he says, I didn't pray enough. I didn't pray near enough. All that other stuff doesn't matter. I don't care about doing all that other stuff more. I would pray more. Pray more for God's intervention. Pray more for God's direction. Pray more for a change in my perspective. I would pray more. You see, prayer prepares us for God's plan. Prepares us for God's plan. Directs our action. It, it, it prepares us for his intervention. It asks for his intervention. Prayer changes our perspective. Prayer needs to be a vital part of who we are, a praying people filled with purpose for what he would have for us. So are you prepared for God's plan in your life today? Are you prepared for God's plan? Do you pray without ceasing? Do you need to begin to grow your prayer muscles through use and opportunity and begin to pray more? Maybe you need something like a little card, like those guys in that third army who had a little card with a prayer on it that you need to pray that God would, maybe it needs to be the Lord's Prayer like we looked at uh, in weeks past, or it needs to be uh, John chapter 17, the prayer Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you need to set a bunch of alarms on your phone. Maybe you set a bunch of alarms on your phone to wake up in the morning. You set a bunch of alarms to, to pray throughout the day, to remind you to pray throughout the day. So that prayer can begin to shift who we are. And if you go on and read, which I encourage you to do, the rest of the book of Nehemiah, the stuff he is able to accomplish and lead the people to do, all centers around the fact that he is constantly pursuing God's heart in prayer. He ends up going to Jerusalem, surveys all that happens, has enemies around them, foreign enemies who, who try to undermine him. He also has enemies that are Jews trying to undermine him. And they end up able to build the walls around the city in just 52 days. Can you imagine a government building project being done in 52 days? Much less one that massive, a wall around the entire city. All because he was centered in prayer. Centered in prayer, constantly in prayer. So what needs to shift in your life today 
so that you can pray as you go, so you can spiritually multitask as he was, praying as you're having conversations, praying as you're doing, praying as you're going over here. Maybe sometimes, yeah, absolutely stopping and praying wherever you find yourself, but praying as you're doing as well. Are you prepared for God's plan through prayer? Maybe today you need to prepare for God's perfect plan in your life, salvation. And you need to believe that Jesus, God's son, died for you. So all of your sins would be forgiven, all of them. And then he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Maybe today you need to believe in that and follow Jesus in that. Because I guarantee you, somebody's been praying for you, praying that you would believe. There's a bunch of names up here on this prayer pew. I come in here and pray over these every day that we've been praying for. Some of these names are up here multiple times. So there's some needs up here, some very transparent and vulnerable needs that people have put in, in prayer on this prayer pew that need to be prayed over. Maybe there's something you need to come and put up here to pray over that you haven't been praying over. Maybe it's something that hasn't been answered because you've been too scared to ask. It's time to step up like James chapter 4. You do not have because you do not ask. You need to put it up here and pray over it. Ask others to pray over it. Maybe it's somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus. That's a bunch of these names I know that don't know Jesus. Maybe you need to be praying over somebody around you that doesn't know Jesus. Pray for them. Desperately pray for them and their salvation. Maybe that person is you. I pray every single day. It's in my prayer journal right there on the front pew. That somebody would come to this service who needs to know Jesus. And they would believe. And if that's you, I've prayed for you. Every day for months. I prayed for you this morning. If you need to know Jesus... Do not walk out those doors without believing today. I want to talk to you. You can talk to me. I'll be down here at the front. Pastor Jared, he'll be right there at the back. Maybe too scared to come down here to the front. Fine. He's right there at the back. We'd love to talk to you about this. Or maybe you say, you know, I have believed. Maybe you need to get baptized. You need to do what we saw earlier in the service and display to the world you belong to Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you, but it shows the world whose you are. Maybe you need to get baptized. You can do it today. The water's warm, right, Jared? It, it hasn't always been, but it is today. You can get baptized today. We got baptism shirts. We got robes, the whole shebang. We got, we got towels up there. You need to get baptized. Maybe you need to do it today. Maybe you need to show that, that you need to follow the Lord. Don't put it off because if you put it off, sometimes it doesn't happen. Or maybe you need to join the church. You can do that as well. What decision do you make today? Believe in Jesus be baptized, join the church, pray more. Where are you in your spiritual journey?